millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Before I start today's episode, I'd like to remind you all once again about the best ways to keep in touch. There's my website, queensofenglandpodcast.com, the Facebook page, Queens of England Podcast, and the Twitter page, at Queens Podcast. If you have any questions about anything brought up in the show, or if you have anything you'd like to add, then these are the places to go. On my website, there's a contact form that you can use to email me, and please do, I do love hearing from you all. Finally, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes if you haven't already done so. It fuels that narcissistic part of me that really enjoys being praised, but it's also an altruistic act on your part, as it rises the show at the rankings, bringing in new listeners. What you're about to hear is part one in what I'm planning on being another three-part series on a famous English queen. When I ask my history enthusiast friends about who their favourite queen from the Middle Ages is, the ones who don't look at me with pitying eyes usually plump for one of two candidates. Some go for Eleanor of Aquitaine for her general badassery, but most I find ignore the French she-wolves Isabella and Margaret and go for Philippa Gregory's true bay, Elizabeth Woodville. Elizabeth is one of history's great survivors, but she was also the most left-field choice of a queen in English history. Yet her impact was in as much about who she was as what it was that she did. I find her absolutely fascinating, and I'm sure you will too. This is a period that has proved hugely fertile for historical fiction writers, most famously, of course, Philippa Gregory. And these writers seek to emotionalise the story, making you root for characters rather than weighing them up dispassionately. That's the business that they are in, but it's not the one I am in. Elizabeth Woodville was no character in a story. She was a living, breathing historical personality, full of skills and flaws, and fact is just as interesting as fiction. To give you an idea of the structure, this episode will cover Elizabeth's early life, her first marriage, then her rather more famous second marriage. The second part will cover her time as queen, and the third will be the fun and games during the reigns of her brother-in-law and son-in-law. There's going to be a lot of blood a lot of intrigue, and a lot of scandal. So stick around, because it's going to be great. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 30, Elizabeth Woodville, the commoner English queen. I, William Arthur Philip Louis. I, William Arthur Philip Louis. Take thee, Catherine Elizabeth. Take thee, Catherine Elizabeth. To my wedded wife. To my wedded wife. I, Catherine Elizabeth. I, Catherine Elizabeth. Take thee, William Arthur Philip Louis. Take thee, William Arthur Philip Louis. 
to my wedded husband. To my wedded husband. With this ring, I thee wed. With this ring, I thee wed. With my body, I thee honour. With my body, I thee honour. And all my worldly goods with thee I share. And all my worldly goods with thee I share. I pronounce that they be man and wife together in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. In 2011, in front of a television audience numbering in the hundreds of millions and in front of hundreds in Westminster Abbey, Prince William, the second in line to the throne, married Kate Middleton. Royal weddings are big events, especially when they involve future heirs to the throne, and this was no exception. But one thing stuck out from this one. Kate Middleton has no noble blood. Her parents are far from being peasants, they are in fact a well-off upper-middle-class family, but in terms of strict class distinction, she is a commoner. When she does come to the throne as queen, she will become the first commoner to do so for six centuries. This is a remarkable fact given the modern world in which we live. She will also be a British queen, something that has become more common in recent decades, but it was not always so. Something that unites all but one of England's post-conquest queens is that they are all foreign-born, subjects of a different kingdom when they came to be married. This is for a number of reasons. Firstly, it allows for the formation of diplomatic alliances, the securing of peace treaties or the claiming of new territories. Secondly, it raised the prestige of the kingdom by linking it to the great noble and royal houses of Europe. But thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, it prevented any of the noble houses of England from gaining too much power and threatening the king. Marriage was the best vehicle for social mobility in the Middle Ages outside of the clergy. By marrying one of your social betters, you gain access to their class, and not just for yourself. If you were, say, a minor country noblewoman who managed to attract the eye of a duke, you not only raise your own prestige, but that of your entire family, especially any brothers you might have. They would gain access to more exclusive social circles, and would be able to attain higher offices in the kingdom, and become more attractive marital prospects themselves. It was a virtuous cycle. Now, of course, this came with a backlash. Higher-born nobles weren't supposed to dilute the family blood with lower-born nobles, or, God forbid, people who had salaried jobs like merchants. Now, things were changing a little in this period for the simple reason that the mercantile class was starting to earn a ton of money, just as the sword nobility's wealth was decreasing. But even so, it was still considered a bit of an embarrassment for you to be required to marry down, as it were. Now, of course, these problems were exacerbated hugely if you were a king. The king, of course, was by definition the highest social class of them all, so if he was to marry anyone within his kingdom, he would elevate their status really high. Even marrying the highest-born lady in the kingdom would be liable to cause trouble. Edward the Confessor, for example, had married Edith of Mercia, and she was the member of the hugely powerful Godwinson family, but giving even them royal legitimacy raised them to challenge the power of the king to an even greater degree than they might otherwise have. This is why you married from outside the kingdom. Quite apart from all the other advantages, it was just easier. The only queen that I've covered in this podcast so far who was English was Matilda of Scotland. She was a descendant of a powerful English family, and of course back then, Scotland was considered, at least by the English, to be a client kingdom of England. Henry I had chosen her precisely because of Matilda's Anglo-Saxon heritage, to make Henry a more attractive proposition to his people than his brother Robert, who had the better claim and was on his way to challenge him. In normal circumstances, then, it was generally a poor idea to marry one of your subjects. But that is exactly what happened in 1464, when Edward IV married Elizabeth Woodville. This was a seismic event, one that had repercussions for the next two centuries of English history. 
According to Lisa Hilton, quote, It initiated a series of problems within the already tangled skein of ambition and political loyalties that knotted into the Wars of the Roses. It elevated a family from relative obscurity to challenge the dominance of the House of York, and it is this conflict that led to the mutual destruction of most of both of their families, but also the birth of a new royal dynasty that ensured the continued bloodline of English and British kingship right up to the present day. Basically, it was a big deal. So, where to start? Well, I usually find that the beginning is the best place. Elizabeth was born in Northamptonshire in 1437. Her mother was Chiquetta of Luxembourg, who was the sister of the Count of St. Paul, and therefore from a very distinguished noble family that could trace its line directly to Charlemagne. In 1433, she had married the Duke of Bedford, brother of Henry V, who, if you remember, had basically ran the English-controlled bits of France during the minority of Henry VI. However, after only three years of marriage, the Duke died, leaving Jaquetta a widow. Not one to hang about, she very quickly remarried, but not to some high-born noble. Nope, she married Sir Richard Woodville, a country gentleman who was probably a household knight to the Duke of Bedford, which is how they would have met. This meant that he was outside the usual bounds of nobility, a commoner in English law, albeit at the highest level one could really be and still not be noble. This was almost as scandalous as Owen Tudor's marriage to Catherine of France had been, but apparently they were very much in love, and so the nuptials took place. In order to achieve it, they were forced to pay a huge fine, which Jaquetta paid for by selling off a ton of land. Now one thing about Woodville's is that they breed like rabbits. Elizabeth was the first of 15 children, and believe me, that would cause a world of problems later on, especially as all but one made it out of childhood, a minor miracle. I won't trouble you with all of their names, but I'll introduce you to a few now. Anne was born a year after Elizabeth in 1438, and then two brothers, Anthony and John. Keep them in mind. Got it? Great. Despite their mother's noble status, the fact that their father was technically a commoner meant that in terms of their class, the Woodville children were in a bit of a legal limbo. However, the marriage to Jaquetta was the making of Daddy Woodville, and his wife's noble connections allowed him to rise up the greasy pole. The first example of this is in 1444, when both husband and wife were part of the Duke of Suffolk's escort, which brought Margaret of Anjou to England. This was in part because Margaret and Jaquetta were related by marriage. In 1448, Richard Woodville was raised to the nobility officially, becoming Baron Rivers, and in 1450 he became a Knight of the Garter, an important order of chivalry. Margaret and Jaquetta were clearly close, and it is likely that Elizabeth became one of the Queen's ladies-in-waiting. In terms of her upbringing, she would have received the normal education for a well-brought-up girl, i.e. heavy on the piety, heavy on the sewing, but she would have also been taught French, since that was one of the main lingua francas of Europe, and vital for courtly women to be able to understand. She was also a real looker. In the stands of beauty of the day, which frankly aren't all that dissimilar to these days, she ticked every box. She was tall, blonde, pale, and had a ready wit. In the Middle Ages, your physical attractiveness were thought to be in direct correlation with your morality. Pretty girls were saintly girls, ugly or physically disabled girls were so because of some past evil. Your good looks, or lack thereof, were considered to be windows into your soul, and so Elizabeth's beauty was a vital arrow in her quiver. Now, normally women like Elizabeth would have been married off pretty much as soon as they came of age in their early teens, but these were not ordinary times. 
Remember, Elizabeth came of age in the 1450s, and so it was important for her to not only find an advantageous husband in terms of wealth and power, but also that he was on the right side of the fissure that was opening up in English politics. The Woodvilles were Arch Lancastrian supporters. Remember that Elizabeth's mother had been married to Henry VI's uncle, and was an aunt by marriage to the Queen. Elizabeth could not be permitted to marry anyone with the hint of rebel scum about them, and so it was not until 1456, when she turned 19, that she finally tied the knot. Her husband was Lord John Grey, a sort of middling noble, but most importantly, of reliable Lancastrian stock. The couple immediately set about starting a family together at Grey's Castle in Leicestershire. Elizabeth was a true Woodville in the sense that she was extremely fertile, and quickly produced two sons, Thomas and Richard Grey, but the marriage would not last long. Why? Because war. In 1461, if you remember, Margaret's Lancastrian army had beaten the Yorkists at Wakefield and killed the Duke of York, and then marched on London. Warwick attempted to block them at St Albans, but was himself defeated. It was a great Lancastrian victory, but it came at a terrible price for Elizabeth, as her husband was killed in action. It then got far, far worse when, in the great Yorkist comeback, the Lancastrians were routed at the Battle of Taunton, leaving Edward IV to become king. Margaret and Henry were forced into exile, and Elizabeth's father and brother Antony were captured. This left Lancastrian families across the kingdom in deep, deep trouble, but few more so than Elizabeth. The Grey estate in Leicestershire was declared forfeit by the new regime, forcing her to go to one of her dower houses in Grafton, Northamptonshire. To make things worse, her in-laws refused to send her the money promised in her marriage contract to the now late Lord Grey, meaning that she was in danger of becoming destitute. She needed to force them to support her, to honour their word, and so was forced to appeal to the highest court in the land, the ultimate arbiter of disputes, the king, her enemy. So, let's talk a little bit about the new king. Along with doing all the usual things that you would expect a king who came to power thanks to a violent rebellion to do, pardons, executions, rewards, lynchings and so forth, he also needed to secure his position through marriage, and there would have been quite the queue because Edward was a very handsome man. According to one chronicler, quote, Men marvelled that he abode so long without any wife. He was the vision of the ideal Plantagenet man, tall, strawberry blonde hair, strong, powerful, and indomitable on the battlefield. He was also quite the ladies' man. Listeners to my episode on Jane Shaw would have already heard this quote, but it's too good not to mention again. It's from Dominic Mancini. Quote, he was licentious in the extreme. Moreover, it was said that he had been most insolent to numerous women after he had seduced them, for, as soon as he grew weary of dalliance, he gave up the ladies much against their will to the other courtiers. He pursued with no discrimination the married and unmarried, the noble and lowly. However, he took none by force. He would be an inveterate womanizer all his life, but that would have done nothing to prevent him from being one of Europe's most eligible bachelors. In the years after the Battle of Taunton, Edward had not only succeeded in banishing most of the Lancastrian threat from the kingdom, but had isolated them diplomatically through treaties with France and Scotland. The deal with France, though, is the most important for our story, as it brought the new regime a great deal of legitimacy abroad, and opened up the French royal family and nobility as potential marital alliance prospects. The top candidates for Edward's wife were Isabella of Castile, Mary of Gelders, and Bona of Savoy. Isabella of Castile is one of the most famous queen regnants in history. 
If you know your Columbus history, then you'll know it was she, along with her eventual husband Ferdinand, that drove the last Islamic emirate from Spain and sponsored Columbus in his voyages to the New World. She was a tantalising prospect for Edward even now, but it would be too hard a deal to get done. Mary of Gelders was the daughter of a supporter of the Duke of Burgundy, but at that point was regent of Scotland after the death of her husband James II. A marital alliance with her would give England a powerful position over Scotland, as the new King of Scots, James III, would be Edward's son-in-law. This could quell the border threat and even possibly allow England to make another play at conquering its northern neighbour. Bona of Savoy, though, was the number one contender. She was the sister of the French Queen and marrying her would cement the Anglo-French alliance. This match was highly favoured by Warwick the Kingmaker and both Edward and King Louis of France seemed keen on it too. Therefore, in 1464, Warwick went off to France to thrash out a deal to secure this marital alliance. So far, so good. However, a few months later, Edward made an extraordinary announcement. The story of the meeting of Edward and Elizabeth is the stuff of legend. The most famous version of the story is that they met under an oak tree near her home in Grafton in 1461. He was on a hunting trip when he came across the beautiful widow Elizabeth, who pleaded with him to intercede with her relatives to help out her and her children. Edward was so ensorcelled that within three weeks he had clandestinely married her. This story has had so much longevity that in the forest of Whittlebury near Grafton, there is a tree called the Queen's Oak, which is supposedly the very tree under which the couple had their first meeting. Now this rather romantic tale really does not fit the timeline, besides which there is no evidence of it happening, so... You know, sorry for crushing your dreams, one and all. The fact is that we don't know when Elizabeth and Edward first met. It may even have been before Edward became king, while Elizabeth was one of Margaret's ladies at court. But in terms of their first meeting after the death of Elizabeth's husband, Lord Grey, it could have been sometime in the months after the Battle of Townsend. If you remember, Elizabeth's father and brother had been captured at the battle. At Stony Stratford, he met the Woodvilles, and it is possible there that he first met Elizabeth. In a dispatch to his Chancellor, he wrote that he had, quote, pardoned and remitted and forgiven unto Richard Woodville, Knight, Lord Rivers, all manner offences and trespasses of him done against us. Many chroniclers claim, or at least imply, some version of this turn of events. Edward meets Elizabeth and is extremely attracted to her. Whether it was love or lust is unclear, depends on how much the chronicler likes him. He asks slash demands that she become his mistress. She says no, knowing Edward's reputation as a love them then dump them lover. If Edward Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wanted her, then he would have to make her his queen. 
Now, Edward was not the sort of man that one just denies, let alone makes demands of. He was her lord, master of the kingdom. But she said no. Edward, it seems, found this terribly exciting, and dare I say it, rather arousing. And he kept asking her, and she kept saying no. Therefore, eventually, he decided to marry her in secret. Now, the problem with this timeline is that this meeting is supposed to have happened in 1461, but Edward is still going around in 1464 arranging other marriages for himself. In my opinion, then, the most likely scenario is that they didn't meet in 1461, that he pardoned the Woodvilles without any romantic input from her. He then met her properly for the first time in 1464, and then this is when the whole will-they-won't-these shenanigans took place, leading to their eventual marriage at a small religious house near the Woodville family home at Grafton, a small ceremony in which only the bride's mother and a couple of her attendants were present as witnesses. Suffice it to say that the reaction of the nobility when they found out about their secret marriage was unsupportive. Here is what some of the contemporary sources have to say. First, we have our old friend Dominic Mancini, who has the most lurid account. Quote, On taking possession of the kingdom, Edward IV behaved for a while in all things too dissolutely. One of the ways he indulged his appetites was to marry a lady of humble origin named Elizabeth, despite the antagonism of the magnates of the kingdom, who disdained to show royal honours towards an undistinguished woman promoted to exalted rank. When the king first fell in love with her beauty of person and charm of manner, he could not corrupt her virtue by gifts or menaces. The story runs that when Edward placed a dagger at her throat to make her submit to his passion, she remained unperturbed and determined to die rather than live unchastely with the king, whereupon Edward cuffed her much the more, and he judged the lady worthy to be a spouse who could not be overcome in her constancy even by an infatuated king. On that account, not only did he alienate the nobles, but he also offended most bitterly the members of his own house. Now, here is the Croylan Chronicle, whose author seems to have been present at lots of Edward's council meetings, and so is fairly reliable at taking the temperature of the nobility. Quote, King Edward, prompted by the ardour of youth and relying entirely on his own choice, without consulting the nobles of the kingdom, privately married the widow of a certain knight, who, though she had only a knight for her father, had a duchess for her mother, and shortly after he had her solemnly crowned queen. This nobility and chief men of the kingdom took amiss, seeing that he had, with such immoderate haste, promoted a person sprung from comparatively humble lineage to share the throne with him. So here we have the same story of the nobles all being angry, and it essentially being all Edward's fault for being so rash and stupid as to secretly marry such a low-ranked woman, without, you know, telling anyone. However, this story of King Edward being overly lusty and only thinking with the bits beneath his trousers is not the universal view. Here is Polydor Virgil's view, a chronicler writing at the time of Henry VII. Quote, Edward sent Richard, Earl of Warwick, ambassador into France to demand in marriage a young lady called Bona, sister of Charlotte, Queen of France, and daughter of Louis, Duke of Savoy. But while the Earl travelled into France and dealt with King Louis, touching this new affinity, Edward's mind suddenly altered, and he took to wife Elizabeth, daughter to Richard L. Rivers, wife sometimes to Sir John Grey, by whom she had two sons, Thomas and Richard, which marriage, because the woman was of mean calling, he kept secret, not only from the ability of his own blood, but also from Richard, her father. He later goes on to say, quote, The nobility truly chafed and made open speeches that the king had not done according to his dignity. 
They found much fault with him in that marriage and imputed the same to his dishonour that he was led by blind affection and not by rule of reason. This does fall short of laying all blame at Edward's feet and actually seems to suggest that it was Elizabeth, the temptress, that caused all of this with all her tempting ways. Keep this in mind because this will become important later. I think that will do for now for the contemporary sources, but there are so many accounts of this meeting that I could have spent an entire episode reading them. And that in itself is worth noting. For most of our queens, there is little to nothing known about the first time they met their husbands. Now, we have scores of accounts of their meeting. Now, partly this is because we have more historical record of this period, but also it's an indication of just how seismic this decision of Edward's to marry Elizabeth was. Modern historians have equally spilt much ink examining why on earth Edward would do this. Some have suggested that it was part of some brilliant strategy of Edward's to marry a bride not chosen by any of his advisers, least of all Warwick, and show himself to be his own man. If that was his plan, it was a pretty petulant and terrible one, and frankly I don't find that argument all that convincing. As usual, I genuinely believe that the simplest explanation usually has the most truth. Edward was a man driven by his urges when it came to his personal life. He fell in love, or perhaps more accurately, perhaps lust that turned into love, with a very pretty and vivacious woman. She rejected his advances, which only made him keener on her, making him putty in her hands. When she said that if he married her, then he could have her, then marriage it was. This makes it seem all rather simple and straightforward, but this was not small potato. It was a huge deal, and it changed everything. As we can tell from all of these chronicle accounts, the nobility were furious with Edward, none more so than Warwick. He had been made to look a fool. As I've said before in episodes, power is all about perception. It's about persuading people that you have it. Warwick had spent the last few years gallivanting about the French court, telling everyone that he spoke for the King of England, that he was the man behind the curtain. He had negotiated with the French king in good faith for the marriage of his sister-in-law, and now he looked like a chump. And Warwick was far too powerful a man to be made a fool out of. Elizabeth was also, let's not forget, from a Lancastrian family. Her father and brother had fought against the king's army at Taunton. If Elizabeth had had her way, Edward would be lying dead on the battlefield. Not only was it Lancastrian family, but it was not a noble one on the male line, which was of course the most important line, and this was a big issue for the nobility. According to the Burgundian chronicler Jean de Rarin, this was the council's reaction to hearing the news about the marriage. Quote, they answered that she was not his match, however good and however fair she might be. And he must know well that she was no wife for a prince such as himself, for she was not the daughter of a duke or earl. But her mother, the Duchess of Bedford, had married a simple knight, so that though she was the child of a duchess and niece of the Count of St. Paul, still she was no wife for him. Some modern historians have sought to downplay her commoner roots, stating that she wasn't really a commoner, given her noble roots on her mother's side, but to me this ignores the male-centric viewpoint of the time. As I said earlier, the male line was key, and it was tainted by non-noble Lancastrian blood, and so the Yorkist nobility of England were far from keen to recognise a woman such as that as their queen. The person, though, that seems to have made the biggest deal about their opposition to the match was Cecily Neville, the king's own mother. There is a lesson here, don't get married without either telling your mother or inviting her to the ceremony. And above all, don't marry a woman that your mother doesn't think is good enough for you. Now the facts here are disputed, but it seems that when she found out that her son had married Elizabeth, 
Cecily told an extraordinary story. The king was a bastard. Now, Lancastrians have been using far stronger words than that for some years, but what Cecily was saying was that Edward was not the child of her late husband, the Duke of York. He was instead the son of an adulterous affair that she had had while in France with her husband. Here is Dominic Mancini's take on it. He says that Cecily, quote, fell into such a frenzy that she offered to submit to public inquiry and asserted that Edward was not the offspring of her husband, the Duke of York, but was conceived in adultery and therefore in no wise worthy of the honour of kingship. Now, I'm not going to get into this, as many, many people have done a lot of amateur sleuthing about it, and it's not abundantly clear if this rumour was spread by Cecily herself, or whether she let it be spread, or whether she had nothing to do with it at all. But this rumour would not go away, and will become very important after Edward's death. That said, there was nothing that anyone could do about the marriage right now. The die was cast. It was presented as a fait accompli. The king was married to this widow, this daughter of a commoner that no one else had heard of. Since their wedding could hardly have been more humble and low-key, Edward needed a grand coronation for Elizabeth, a ceremony befitting her new status as Queen of England. On the 30th of September 1464, Elizabeth was formally presented as Queen to the court by the furious Warwick, and the coronation was arranged for the following May. Now, this coronation had to butter a lot of parsnips. It had to make up for the Queen's low birth, the lack of any material advantage that she had brought in, money or alliances, and it had to make up for the suddenness of it all, and it had to make up for the fact that some were openly questioning whether this impetuous act by Edward meant that he was unfit to be king. Now, we know quite a bit about Elizabeth's coronation thanks to a detailed contemporary account written by an unknown English writer, as well as shorter accounts in other places. Edward wanted this to be an international affair, and so sent word to Burgundy asking them to send a delegation, using the fact that the Duke was related to his mother-in-law, Jacquetta of Luxembourg. The Treasury set aside £400 for the ceremony, though of course others bore some of the other costs, and we have a breakdown of some of the expenses, which include nearly £28 to a silkwoman for the Queen's chairs and saddles, over 100 quid to someone for a gold cup and basin, and 280 quid to a Florentine for two cloths of gold. This was to be a lavish affair indeed. On the 23rd of May 1465, Edward created 39 new knights of the bath, and the next day Elizabeth was received into the City of London by the various companies, including most notably the Mercers. London Bridge was transformed the occasion. To mask the awful smell normally present, 45 loads of sand had been laid down on the ground, and the drawbridge was fumigated. Along the route, there were singers and musicians and platforms with various displays going on, including an angel decorated with peacock feathers. She was then conveyed to the tower, as was traditional for queens before their coronations. The next day, the new knights of the bath conveyed her in an open horse litter, think Kennedy, but a carriage instead of a car and no Lee Harvey Oswald. This was an opportunity for the people of London, one of the most crucial support bases for the Yorkists, to see their new queen before her coronation. Before this, they had no clue who she was. Now they saw a beautiful young woman in all her new royal splendour. By all accounts, they were entranced. Finally, the following day was Coronation Day. I will now quote from the contemporary account at length. Just so you are aware, I've cleaned up the language a bit from some original indecipherable Middle English and also abridged it for your pleasure. I will of course butt in at various points to pick out points of interest. I will also be playing over the account the music that was playing during the service, Te Deum Laudamus. At Westminster Hall just across the road from the Abbey, the great and good of England had assembled. Quote, 
At the entering of the queen into the hall, she was under the canopy, clothed in a gown of purple, and a crown upon her head. She was brought in between the Bishop of Durham on her right hand, and the Bishop of Winchester on her left hand, and next following the Abbot of Westminster under the same, and the said canopy was borne up over the queen by four barons. The Duchess of Buckingham bare up the queen's train. There followed next the Duchess of Suffolk, my Lady Margaret her sister, and the Duchess of Bedford. The Queen, standing in her place of state between the two said bishops, held in her right hand the sceptre of St Edward, and in her left hand the sceptre of the realm, and was so led through the hall into Westminster Abbey. From the final step of the door, she went all the way barefoot upon cloth into the abbey in procession. And at the procession was the Archbishop of Canterbury, primate of all England, and many bishops and abbots. And going before her into the abbey on foot was the Duke of Clarence, the Earl of Arundel, the Duke of Norfolk, and the Duke of Buckingham. So we have here the Queen really bringing it. She is dressed in purple, which is of course the royal colour and very expensive. She is flanked by some of the biggest churchmen of the land, and has some of the greatest barons of the land, including the Dukes of Clarence and Norfolk, carrying a canopy over her head. It's quite an entrance, showing her as both a figure of piety, but also power. She's even surrounded by what we may think of today as bridesmaids. By going barefoot, she was showing modesty, even while wearing all that expensive gear, showing both her magnificence, but also her humbleness. Of course, this is all highly choreographed, but it all mattered to those watching. It continues, quote, And so with the said solemn procession, she was received into the abbey at the north door, and was conveyed through the choir, and so proceeded to the high altar, then kneeling while solemn appointing was read over by the Archbishop of Canterbury. And that done, she lay before the altar while certain supplications were said over her by the said Archbishop. She was anointed first the head, and so forth as appertained. And then she was crowned by the Archbishop. Then all the bishops and archbishops at the solemn coronation so conveyed her into the place of state, with great reverence and solemnity. The Abbot of Westminster waiting upon the sceptre's spiritual, and the Earl of Essex upon the sceptre's temporal. So you can see here the mixing of the obviously extremely religious ceremony with secular or temporal aspects. The Queen was expected to inhabit both realms, being both a pious woman and servant of Christ, but also a good queen to her subjects and their more day-to-day needs. Now be prepared for a bit of a merry-go-round. Quote, At the beginning of the Gospel, sitting in her state, the abbot and earl delivered unto her the said sceptres, which she held until the finishing of the Gospel. Then they were received back by the said abbot and earl, who bare the sceptres before her to the altar, and then to the place of state. The Duchess of Suffolk and the young Duchess of Bedford, during the Mass, reverently held the crown on the Queen's head. After the finishing of the Mass, all while going barefoot, She went to the high altar again and was commanded by the archbishop who had sung mass, and then was conveyed in the dignity of nobility back to the place of state. And that done, the queen sang De Deum. So as far as I can tell, Elizabeth spent that entire service just getting up and down from the high altar to her throne all the time, while her ladies had to help her with all her regalia, and the nobles and bishops had to escort her. All while barefoot, of course, because she was the most humble woman about even while having a huge crown held up on her head by some of her richest close friends. Next, she was led out of the abbey under that lovely canopy back to Westminster Hall, where the coronation feast was then held. Now, I'm not going to quote all of that because it was just a list of names of people doing various stuff, and I think we've all had enough of that. There were over 3,000 guests at this banquet, and there were three massive courses, the first consisting of 17 dishes, the second of 19, and the third of 15, with what you got depending on your social rank. 
I imagine that Elizabeth got all the good stuff. Finally, the next day, everything was topped off by a good old-fashioned tournament, which was won by Thomas Lord Stanley, who received a ruby ring from the newly crowned Queen as a prize. So, what was the point of all this? Well, like I said, this was all about clothing Elizabeth in a great cloak of legitimacy that would make everyone forget the fact that she was really a pretty crappy choice for a queen. Make no mistake, her crappiness had nothing to do with her per se, it was to do with the fact that she brought no advantage at all with her. Normally queenly coronations were grand affairs so that kings could show off to her rich and powerful foreign relatives how things were done in England and how much grander England was than whatever poxy little backwater you came from. I'm looking at you, France. By doing the same, perhaps at an even greater scale for Elizabeth, Edward was in essence trying to trick everyone into thinking that she was of the same social status as all those other queens. Did it work? Well, you're going to have to wait until next time to find out. Yes, I know, I'm a tease. In the next episode, we will see the rise of the Woodville clan at court and the hugely destabilising effect that flooding the marriage market with newly eligible bachelors and bachelorettes had. We will also see the shifting tides of the Wars of the Roses, this time from Elizabeth's point of view, as the crown was taken off her and then replaced on her head as the red and white rose fought it out. It's going to be great. See you in a couple of weeks. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.